Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. I'm Maureen McGrath. Tonight on the program, I asked Dr. Jason Kinderchuk if, when, we are ever going to see the other side of this pandemic. Also talking grief with a woman who lost her son to a heroin overdose. And going to school or online learning is a hot topic these days. Jennifer Flanagan, CEO of Actual Canada, joins me to talk about the impact the school disruptions have had on our children. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Maureen's Health Headline. You have heard his voice before. He is a bona fide virologist. He actually studies emerging and re-emerging viruses from the University of Manitoba. It is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Good evening, Maureen. Happy New Year. Yes, it's felt like it's almost been a year since we've spoken. (laughs) It has. Hope everything's going well. Well, listen, we're, we're battling right now with, uh, with this so-called geothermal uh, heating system we have in the house that we bought. And, uh, man, it's been, it's been just a struggle. Uh, you know, it, it, you're just trying to keep a, you know, a kid warm and, uh, and a family warm. And, yeah. You know, yeah. is that heating in the heat in the floor? No, it oh. isn't. It, it's still through radiators, but uh, it's, listen, it's, it's complex. This is, I learned very quickly, this is why I'm in virology, because yeah. I do not understand <laughs> this kind of stuff. I just know that when I was a kid, we had heating in the floor, which was awesome growing up on the first floor. And, um, but the heat broke and we all got to go to a hotel. So it was a blast <laughs> that had an indoor pool. Anyway, um, so, you know, kids' memories might be different than their parents' <laughs> stress. <laughs> anyway, um, as they're teenagers, we learn that to be so true. Um, but nonetheless, that's not why I invited you here to talk about geothermal heating. Here's my question. Is it the same as floor in the heating you can say how far (laughs) how far away from uh that technology i am but anyway nonetheless i cannot believe that we're still here still talking and things are still changing and uh we're in you know it's almost like back to the future it's almost like march 2020 only people aren't aren't as scared i don't think and we have vaccines but you know, not everybody took them. That's a problem. It's a global pandemic. And it looks like people aren't going to be taking them, no matter what the news says about uh, the Omicron, which is what I'm referring to. It, you know, the, the percentage of cases just continues to go up across Canada, the U.S., and around the world. And yet the percentage of people getting vaccinated has barely, the, the needle has barely moved on that. Like, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's an exasperating time, and, and and I think one of the things that that I've really tried to get across, like, you know, is, is this is a little bit unique. We have, we haven't dealt with, uh, you know, a variant that has not only been really transmissible, but has made everybody sick at the same time. Now, this is a struggle because where we are right now is we listen. We still have cases of severe disease. We're seeing hospitalizations in, in ICU. Uh, numbers increasing, which was uh, something I think we had hoped we were going to avoid based on on data from other regions across the world. But the bigger aspect, I think, of this as well is that it's not just affecting healthcare. When you look across essentially every facet of of our community, uh, people are being affected by this. Whether it's in commerce, whether it's in industry, whether it's in uh, protective services or home care, everybody's sick at the same time, which means. Your ability to get things done or, or to do things is also being severely hampered. And, and that's 
very difficult because now we're, we're in an odd place. Now it's not just healthcare that's being threatened. It's actually a lot of other uh, services as well. That's right. And, you know, I hear um, and, and I'm sure you've heard and people are hearing uh, COVID is the, uh, the Omicron, sorry, is it's well, they'll say COVID is a respiratory virus and it's like the common cold and Omicron is much milder. But, you know, given the transmissibility, we are having increased admissions in the ICUs and visits to the hospital. And it's actually there is some evidence to support and it makes sense that COVID-19 is a vascular disease, that it's not a simple cold, and which is why people end up on ventilators. They end up in the ICU because they have problems breathing. They have problems with their hearts. They have problems with their blood pressure. And, you know, we're learning more and more as we go. And, you know, I've said all along, I don't want to get COVID. Like, I don't care if it's mild. <laughs> I don't want it yeah. because I don't know. I don't know what the long COVID symptoms, you know, who, there's like 30% of people that are at risk for, or, you know, or, or um, have contracted long COVID symptoms, long haul symptoms, and that can impact your entire life. So why risk it? But are, are you seeing that in the research that you're doing that it's the impact on the cardiovascular system? Yeah, definitely we are, right? I mean, one of the things that I think we, we have to appreciate with infectious diseases and, and certainly with viruses is that. We, we tend to think that they are very myopic, that, you know, we, Ebola is a good example where we used to think that this was predominantly just a hemorrhagic disease. Well, you know what? Hemorrhage occurs in a, actually a very small portion of cases. And in fact, we see not only does it affect GI tract and it affects other organ systems, it also can be sexually transmitted. So do we have to start to broaden our perspectives of what these different infectious diseases do and, and what types of disorders are, are accompanying them as well. With COVID, we also have to appreciate that variants have also changed things a little bit. So the complexity now gets increased. It's not just purely respiratory disease. It actually affects other organ systems. We're, and we may see some of that change depending on what variants are emerging and how they interact. Because to be fair, the, the receptor, the, the you know, kind of the antenna that the virus is looking for is not exclusively found in the respiratory tract. It's found in a lot of other organ systems. Does that mean that the virus always goes to those areas? No. But if it can, then we now see that some of those things start to broaden out. Um, and that's been complex. It's, it's complex in trying to discuss this with, uh, with the public because it isn't easy to say this is what COVID is. What you can basically say is here is the like litany of different uh, variations of COVID you may see, depending on where this virus is going, and by the way, how your immune system reacts to it. So it's, it's very, very difficult. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. He studies emerging and re-emerging viruses out of the University of Manitoba. He joins me on the line. Dr. Kinderchuk, um, Omicron hit us. It was a Christmas surprise that we none of us needed. Um, it surprised many, but it didn't come to us first. Uh, the UK and South Africa has also been hit with Omicron, but all indicators suggest that both of those countries may have passed the peak of the fourth wave at a national level. What are your thoughts um, 
for us? What what is the what do we have to look at here? What's on the horizon? Do, is there hope that there will be a fall in the number of new cases as there was in South Africa? They had about a thirty percent fall around Christmas week, and so they went. Um, from like 125,000 cases down to 80,000 cases. is Can we hope for the same here? Yeah, I, th- I think we're hoping that that, that, that may be the, the reality that we face. Denmark you know, saw something similar. The UK, it looks like at the very least that, that the growth rate is, is maybe starting to slow. Um, I, I think that you know, we, we don't want to try and, and guide our own thoughts too much on, on modeling that we're seeing from other countries because we, we don't necessarily know what variables uh, or what, you know, the d- different variables are, are going to uh, have an effect here. So y- you want to encourage people to still be making good choices and not just say, listen, in a few weeks, this is going to be done. Um, everything's fine. Don't worry. So I think that that's our, my greatest fear is that people get complacent um, because they think that it is going to be short lasting and, and we don't want this to go on longer than, than it, it will. Um, but it, it is burning through the population very, very quickly. I mean, that's, this is, we have not seen this before where, you know, diagnostic services are completely overwhelmed um, to the point that we don't get accurate case counts anymore because it's just going, uh, it's just transmitting to the community too quickly. So but I think we're hoping that that means we're going to see, um, you know, a, a very quick spike, as high as it may be, but that we may see a, a rapid regression. Um, but we just can't assume that even if cases start to fall, that that's also going to necessarily mean that it's going to be a rapid decrease um, because this could be something that that could linger in regards to hospitalizations and and, and effects that we see. Absolutely. And also, uh, South Africa has a younger population than North America by about 10 years on average, I think. And and, um, also, it's summer there, so I wonder if those variables will affect. But is one of the reasons or a couple of reasons that that we might see a, a decrease in cases after we see this big peak or surge is that people are being more careful. They are wearing their masks. They are starting to work from home. They are being, you know, not gathering together. The gyms have been closed down. The casinos are open. <laughs> I don't. Sometimes I don't understand the decisions um, that some politicians have made across the country, but I'm not privy to the data that they're viewing. Um, but, you know, is it that people are being more careful? And also, as you mentioned, it has just, you know, run rampant through uh, individuals. There's so many people who are sick. I mean, it could be a combination of a lot of things, right? And, and, and certainly, listen, we, you know, I, I've you know, lived vicariously between two provinces, uh, you know, you know, over the last 18 months, and, and two provinces that have dealt with this drastically differently. Mm-hmm. Saskatchewan still has things that are wide open. Manitoba, we're starting to, to restrict things a little bit more, right? And, and I think part of this is going to be that you have people that are getting those third doses in, in many provinces. You have people that... Uh, that also that if they're getting exposed and they've been previously vaccinated or they've been previously infected, they may be getting uh, a boost from this as well if they don't get uh, symptomatic disease or if, or if it's fairly mild. So you have a, a lot of these different factors that are all playing in, frankly, at, at the same time. But I keep going back to this idea of saying, listen, we may see that things change progressively very, very quickly in Canada and, and certainly other high income areas of the world where now Omicron goes through and, and we actually don't see massive rises in, in cases anymore. We can't you know, get to that point of believing then that the pandemic is now over. It, it will be over when globally it's over, not just when it's regionally over. And, and that's something we, we just have to keep in mind, uh, you know, depending on how this all bears out. 
That's right. I, I always say it's a global pandemic. You know, people will say, you know, in certain areas, and, and I've lived vicariously between two countries, quite frankly, and things have been done extremely differently um, between the two countries, the U.S. and Canada. And um, but, you know, even though there might be areas where there are high rates of immunization, it's the fact that, un, you know, people are bringing it in from from other countries. And and, you know, that unvaccinated person does really have an impact um, so, so you think there's some hope anyway for us? <laughs> well, I, I try to be cautiously optimistic wherever I can. Um, I, I, Omicron has changed things. To me, you know, the, the concern that I have is, listen, when we, when we were running through with Delta, we kind of thought that Delta was the silverback of, of what we had seen so far. We didn't expect Omicron to be the next thing that emerged. Yeah. Um, we can't get in this idea that Omicron is now the top of the food chain because we don't know that that's necessarily for certain. So let's, let's be cautious. And, and try and not give the virus any more room uh, to, to change as much as we can control that. Absolutely. Dr. Kendrachuk, thank you once again. Always appreciate your great information. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Maureen. Take care. A tragedy befell our neighborhood over the holidays, and many, many of my friends and neighbors have been grieving. There was a memorial service held today to which I did not want to go, but I Five minutes before, I got my candle and cup of tea and walked down to the beach where the neighbors gathered. And it was good. I was glad that I went. There was connection. One of the neighbors, a physician, spoke beautifully. He spoke in a very raw, uh, simple way. We lit our candles and raised our glasses and tossed roses into the ocean. And I'm so glad that I went and as was everybody there, because we were all seemingly suffering privately. With the holidays over, many people are, cope, are left to cope with their magnified feelings of grief and loss of a loved one or a beloved pet, a job that no longer exists, loss of income, loss of a dream, and even a loss of sense of self. The Atlantic says that 72% of Americans say they know somebody who has died or has been hospitalized due to COVID. That means for Canada, 660,000 Canadians could be affected by bereavement and 6.6 million Americans. And many Americans are suffering from psychological stress. My next guest knows all too well about walking through grief and loss. With the holidays over, she is here to share her story her fast-paced professional career as a lifetime appointed federal judge came to an abrupt halt when she lost her 27-year-old son to a heroin overdose. And instead of grieving in a way that made people around her feel comfortable, she did it her way. She quit her job, sold her house, and went on a two-and-a-half-year journey that took her all over the world, finding a healing practice along the way. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Karen V. Johnson. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty uh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. I also want to say that you've uh, authored a beautiful book called Living Grieving, and we have a copy to give out on the air tonight. So if uh, that would help anybody out there, the number to call will take the fourth caller, one eight seven seven. 
399-9898. Thank you so much for joining me um, because... Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Um, It's, you know, take me back. You were a lifetime appointed federal judge and, and basically life as you knew it's changed forever. Yeah. So my 27-year-old son, you know, he and I were very, very close. And um, and he went to a Halloween party, and they had too much to drink, and they decided they were going to try heroin, and um, they just gave him too much. He was a big guy. He was about 6'8 and 275, oh. and they just gave him way too much, and he died almost instantly. And um, my life changed forever. You know, I just didn't see it coming. Um, you know, he struggled as other young men did with businesses and trying to find his way in the world. And, and, um, you know, you know, of course you always think, what did I miss? How, how could I have not seen something? But, uh, in any case, you know, it just really changed my entire world. I felt like I had been thrown out of a car, you know, along a deserted desert. I didn't know where I was or how to cope or, thrown out of the matrix, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but it's just like life stopped and everything changed and nothing seemed real and nothing, um, I, you know, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with the, um, complex grief and, um, I I can't imagine. I'm so sorry for the loss of your son. And and what was his name? Ben, Benjamin. Benjamin. I'm sorry. I mean, it's it's every parent's worst nightmare, and and, it is, totally. and dare I yeah. say, every mother's worst worst night. You know, it's just it's just horrific. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I was listening to you in the beginning. You were talking about all the um, potential losses and <clears throat> opioid um, overdoses in the United States has increased about thirty percent through um, during these COVID times. And I don't know about Canada, but the statistics are just staggering. They are. It's a twinning tragedy, I often say. You know, we have the pandemic and then we have the opioid crisis as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's just horrific. How long ago did did Ben Seven years. Seven years. Mm -hmm. So after the, you you said you grieved in a way that was different from what other people expected. How do people expect people to grieve? Hmm. Yeah, so I think people, we make people that are grieving or suffering a loss of any kind, divorce, um, businesses, whatever, you know, we, we make them uncomfortable. So we expect people to get through it, move on and uh, get over it. And, you know, we have this fast paced world. I was listening to a commercial today. It says life comes at you fast. And so we're kind of indoctrinated to move it along, move it along. Mm -hmm. And, Especially with grief, because we make people around us uncomfortable. So what happens is people who are grieving often become self-isolating and don't want to go out and don't want to socialize and don't want to do anything because they know that we're making people feel uncomfortable. And people say, well, let's not talk about that, right? <laughs> but the elephant in the room, let's not talk about that. Right. right? Any uncomfortable right? subjects. Any uncomfortable subjects. So... <clears throat> but, um, yeah, so I, I just realized that I had um, also seen my son. My son came to me right after he died. I saw him right in front of me, and I thought, oh, my gosh, 
he's alive. I called my ex-husband and said, you've got to call the ME. I think he's alive oh. in front of me. And, you know, I was hysterical. And, and so the ME, you know, very kindly looked and said, I'm sorry, but, you know, he's gone. And that was my <clears throat> introduction to, gosh, there is really life after death. And, oh, my gosh, you know, all of a sudden I'm seeing my son in front of me and that I, my level of grieving was making people so uncomfortable that, um, you know, I felt that I couldn't go to a, a regular healthcare professional because I felt like that would be medicated or, you know, it would be medicated away in some way. And I wanted to continue to be able to see him. I didn't want that taken away. So it ended up me putting me on a path um, toward spiritual things. And I hadn't been a spiritual person at all before that happened. Um, and I ended up going to a uh, medium. And I said, you know, my son is right here. Um, he came in right behind me. He's standing right over there, but I can't hear what he's saying, but I can see him. And so she was pretty amazing. And she, afterwards, she, she gave me a really nice reading. And she said, by the way, you might have some abilities yourself. You know, most people have no idea where their loved one is, and they're standing right there and can see them. So this led to a spiritual path of mediumship and um, ultimately to becoming a shaman um, with, uh, with the Four Winds Society. And actually, I teach shamanism online now. So it's been a really long journey, but that kind of grieving really didn't make people very comfortable. And um, and, and I yeah. can imagine leaving your job, a position mm -hmm. like that, that many, many people would covet. And I'm certain um, right. many, many people would have loved to have had the career that you had and, mm -hmm. and to own a home. I mean, it's challenging in Canada to own a home. I know that in the States, in many parts of the States, it's extremely challenging as well, <laughs> unless it's Laurel, yeah. Mississippi, yeah. where it's sure. <laughs> hometown. Um, but, uh, but it's, you know, to sell everything, to basically leave it all in search yeah. of, what were you searching? I really wanted to understand grief and death and how I was supposed to continue living mm -hmm. without him. You know, and it, it, it um, excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold. But, That's okay. But um, <laughs> yeah, so how may, how do you continue to live, and and what is this all about, in life and death, and what is the meaning and the purpose, and <clears throat> all of those questions, those big questions to life. So I, I really went um, to Africa, to Bangladesh, to India, to um, John of God in Brazil, to um, Chile. I mean, I went through so many countries and talk to spiritual leaders all over, you know, just to try to find out what is this? What's the point? What is the point? You know, why is this and how is this? And, and what am I supposed to do now? Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. I, I yeah. don't, I don't know how, I mean, I, you've, you've gone on and, and again, it's, it's, you know, I, I'm grieving at the moment. Um, and, but, you know, as you say, it's it's a different type of grief, you know, whether it's a job loss or a loss of a pet or loss of a friend. Um, yeah. It's, but I just think, yeah, I can't imagine how how you could have gone on to be to be honest with you, and I I commend you for that because I cannot imagine your struggle. Yeah, no, I, I I just couldn't go on, and I I knew that, and I knew that something was telling me that you know it's that it's there's a different way there's there's more to learn i mean i think that was finding that spiritual path and 
And then I always talk about the gift in death. You know, if you can look at death, it took me a while to figure this out, but if you can look at death as an open door, Uh new possibilities, to a new life, to getting back in touch with yourself, to get in touch with what you want and in the life you want to create out of the ashes of the old one, because whether we like it or not, the old life is gone. Uh And we have to either stay stuck, um, and I don't think people are really wired to be stuck. I think we're wired for transformation and change. And when we try to stay stuck, that's where we get ill and, and um, unhappy and, mm-hmm. you know, all those kind of things. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we know that uh, marriage and parenthood is transformational, right? And we all get very excited about it. But what we don't talk much about in our culture is that grief is also transformational. There is, a, I call it the wondrous wisdom of grief. Mm-hmm. And it has an energy, a transformational energy, just like marriage or childbirth, um, these things that we celebrate. The difference is nobody wants to talk about it because it makes people uncomfortable. It's associated with sadness and pain and despair. Right. But if we can get past that and realize that not only is it associated with sadness and despair, but with transformation. Absolutely. And touch into that, yeah. Did you ever regret leaving your position as a federal judge and, and selling mm-hmm. your home? Not for a moment. And wow. It's so funny because my um, friend came to my daughter and told her, you know, your mother's grieving, she's going to regret this, mm-hmm. you know, blah, 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 blah. And my daughter, who is an engineer, so she's very left-brained, <clears throat> logical, but she said, you know, I think my mother should shake her rattle and release her inner butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta love it, right? You, you gotta absolutely you gotta love Total her. Support, right? Total yes. Support. Oh yeah, she's amazing. And no, I've never looked back, and I never regretted it for a minute. I mean, it was made very clear to me once this happened. It's almost like sometimes we need a big event in our life to really wake us up out of the trance. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like hamsters and hamster wheel, and we've created this life around us. We've got family and children and parents and, you know, brothers and sisters and blah, 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 all these things and uh, jobs. And here we go. We're going along, going along, and we don't really dare stop mm-hmm. because we put so much into play, mortgages and car payments and all these things. So, you know, it's it, it's it has a life of its own and it almost takes a really big event like death or illness to make us stop and look around. And when I looked around, I said, you know, I've been driving in the second worst traffic in the United States for 30 years. Um, and I'm really sick of that. And yeah. in my job, I'm really tired of going in and seeing boxes of papers stacked up to the ceiling discovery and, you know, all the things for cases. I'm pretty tired of that. And I'm ready for something different. And and then to get in touch with what would that be? Karen V. Johnson is my guest. She's the author of Living, Grieving. She writes, I want you to know something really important. You may be feeling stuck in your grief and wondering why you can't seem to get over it. I felt the same way until I realized we do not get over grief. Karen was a federal judge who had a lifetime appointment and who lost her 27-year-old beautiful son, Ben, to an accidental heroin overdose. 
she talks about grief in a way like no one has ever talked about it before. It's not like catching the flu. We're not sick. There's no cure and you can't medicate it away. It's a state <laughs> of being that carries energy that you can tap into to create a new life. And you've created a new life for yourself, Karen, and now you're helping others to create a new life as well. And as you say, grief comes in many forms, uh, many different types of losses that people suffer, maybe the loss of their parents or the loss of their pet or loss of a job or loss of a marriage. Um, or, or loss of a marriage as somebody thought it was meant to be or, or loss of a dream and, and people are grieving and they, they have regrets. Um, what are, what are some of the ways, um, you know, why is it important to honor, um, a past loved one? Because, um, honoring them and finding, getting in touch with where you're stuck in your grief allows you to move on. If you don't, if you don't, honor them and you don't um, come to terms with death, you know, then you, you carry it. So a lot of times my clients have um, old grief. So they think they're grieving one thing, but the grief is really has to do with other losses. And sometimes we need to go back and think about old losses. Unresolved grief is really heavy. So it's it's not just honoring the loved ones, but it's also honoring yourself and moving through this grief in a, in a way that is, um, you know, it's a little different the way I do it. Uh, you know, there's many books that will talk about the things that you need to do. You need to, you know, start going to movies and you need to start to date or whatever that is. You know, if you've, it's a marriage, you lost a loved one. and tell you very practical things to do in this physical realm, in this physical world. But my book is really about up-leveling, up-leveling your grief to the ceremonial level so that we're involving a different type of uh, different part of your brain instead of the reptilian brain. So we know there's about four parts of the brain, the reptilian, the mammalian, the neocortex, and the prefrontal cortex. So we want to up-level our grieving in a ceremonial way so we're dealing with our neocortex. And we're dealing at the level of the soul and the mythic level. And we do this by, I always have people have a pie pan and a candle and a pen and a pencil and sitting down and really looking at 16 exercises where they really get in touch with where they are stuck in their own grief. And, and um, might and that might be, be regrets, for example, and guilt? And we only have about 30 seconds left, unfortunately. But many people, do they need to make peace with those kinds of things, regrets in particular? Absolutely. Shame, blame, guilt. Absolutely. You know, and find out where that lives on us and why, where it is that we're stuck. Well, mm-hmm. I wish I could have you on for longer, and I will definitely have you back again, Karen. It's a fascinating, fabulous book, Living Grieving. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. You are so welcome. Thank you. And where can people get pick up those who didn't win? We did have another winner, Jen, um, from Port Coquitlam, B.C., but if they haven't um, won tonight, where could they pick up a book? Amazon has it, and also uh, in my website, karenjohnson.net. Wonderful. And, um, yeah. It is indeed one of the hottest topics of the pandemic. Whether it is safer for kids to be in school or safer for kids to be at home. 
So some people will say that being in school is the safest place. But what are some of the other effects on children and post-secondary students uh, and also after they have graduated? What are some of those effects that staying at home or learning online or missing out on school or having this interruption in their life has on them. Joining me on the line from Ottawa is education expert Jennifer Flanagan and CEO of Actua Canada. And she's going to talk to us about the impact on students and what this means for our future workforce and how to best prepare our youth for the jobs of tomorrow. Good evening, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So, you know, across the country, lots of kids are going to be heading back to school. Mm-hmm. We've had a bit of a stagnated start, um, but lots are going back. Uh, lots of nervous parents out there, not sure what to do. Some feel the schools aren't safe enough. But at the end of the day, it's about learning and it's about our kids and it's about the impact that this interruption, if you will, in mm-hmm. traditional schooling has on them. So what are some of the effects that you're seeing? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're, you're in BC and your kids are going back tomorrow. I mean, I think it's, um, it, it's so difficult. I just want to start off by saying to, to parents and to educators and teachers who are listening, it's, it is just an incredibly um, trying time for, for everybody, not to mention the students. Um, so it's very clear that these ongoing school disruptions have had dramatically negative impacts on both the, the certainly the social side of things, but also on, on from an academic perspective. And it's going to take us a little bit of time to, to fully understand the long-term impacts. But what we're quickly seeing and, and hearing in you know large numbers from parents and teachers who are on the ground is that they are seeing uh, the learning lag start to, to, to really show up. So that's in numeracy, uh, so on math and, and on literacy measures. So kids are, are generally starting to, to lose progress that they made in learning. And then you layer that in with um, uh, really big hits that they're having to their confidence levels. And I can talk a little bit more about that, but confidence being so, so critical to, to uh, positive learning. So that's taken a hit. Their motivation to learn has uh, been dramatically impacted. And also, and I think most importantly, when you think about how they're going to progress in the future and, and become employed and be, you know, happy, productive adults, it's a love of learning. And we need that love of learning to be developed when youth are, you know, in y- young learners, and that is being impacted. And I think that will have very significant consequences. And that's both for kids in K to 12, certainly, but that also holds true. You mentioned post-secondary students. All of those things are impacting them as well. So, you know, they're they're having learning loss. They're also suffering from confidence and motivation issues, um, not to mention all the other things that are uh, that they're having to deal with as young adults. And uh, the social connections as well. I am sure, you mm-hmm. know, some kids who are so used to staying at home and being on the computer and now they're, you know, being taught through Zoom and they're on the computer that much more, but they're a little bit less than inspired. And it's not just the elementary school children. As uh, I know of uh, a, actually it was a nurse practitioner program and the professor told me that the students, and these are nurse practitioners, so they've already gone to nursing school and likely have already been working and they were falling asleep 
uh, during the online classes. And so she actually Absolutely. made them all, instead of them bringing blankies <laughs> and pillows and teddies <laughs> uh, <laughs> online, she made them mm-hmm. uh, get dressed and put a lab coat on for every class. Yeah. You know, and so it must so great. it must be so difficult um, for mm-hmm. you know to you you can get uninspired and you, and you mentioned lack of motivation. So how has it affect um, ha, has it affected the kids' confidence? I'm interested in that. But also, have any groups in particular mm-hmm. been impacted more so than others? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I I love that example because it's the kind of innovative thinking that we've been so fortunate. So many educators and teachers have been just on, you know, uh, on the fly doing those types of things when they see, you know, they're, they're losing their students. Um, so uh, all of this, all of the negative impacts that we're talking about are mm-hmm. exacerbated if there are other barriers in place. So for students who are facing um, any kind of socioeconomic challenge, kids that have housing and food uh, security issues, and again, this goes for, for post-secondary students who, you know, may or may not have been able to maintain their employment. Can they pay for school? Can they pay their apartment? You know, do they keep their apartment or do they go home to their parents? There's so many decisions that are big. They feel big and, and they're weighing on them. So from a confidence perspective, um, you know, it, the things that kids normally do to, to build those confidence levels, so both inside school, you get that response from your teacher face-to-face, you're, you know, you're exploring, you're failing, you're, you're trying things out, and you get feedback, um, but also all those other activities that build confidence in, in youth, and, you know, whether that's social interactions, clubs, sports, there's a huge thing. Um, so the, all, the, all the ways that they would normally build confidence at these really formative uh, times are all, have all been gone. For, right. for years. <laughs> and so their confidence is taking a hit. And that is, you know, university students are feeling that in the sense that they're just having trouble kind of envisioning themselves as successful leaders in the future, or successful in, you know, in a career path. They don't know what path to take. So that, that confidence is, is, you know, we just need to be really aware that that's, um, that's an issue. We've got to figure out ways to, you know, to build up. Um, opportunities for them to build that confidence. Exactly. And and you gave us a few examples that touched upon independence, right? Even the little yes. kid walking down the street to school by themselves for the first time and then yes. carrying on with their friends, you know, meeting their mm-hmm. friends and then walking to school together. Yes. And also, right. you know, university students maybe, you know, not being able to make their payments, maybe their parents have lost their jobs, having to move home, that loss of independence as well can be so, so difficult on somebody's self-esteem. And I know it's a big issue. Uh, you know, we've got to get the kids back to school. I understand that. But, we, you know, the other part is we've got to make those schools safe through ventilation and appropriate yeah. masks and, you know, give the parents the confidence that their kids can go to school and go to school mm-hmm. safely and not end up with a virus that, that is actually looking like, and this is for another uh, later segment in the program, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's looking not just a viral infection, but it can actually impact uh, the vascular system as well. And so, it, it, you know, it's, it's a pretty serious situation. And, um, mm-hmm. But what are, you know, for, we're talking about the post-secondary uh, students, mm-hmm. they're going to have a little bit of delay and then, and then the jobs issue is going to be um, mm-hmm. a concern. What are the changing skills mm-hmm. in demand by employers? Mm-hmm. So I'll say that you know two of the biggest things that are that are impacting uh, this for post-secondary students are 
um, that they normally would be in these years, this is when they'd be developing those networks that are so critical for first employment. You know, like 80% of people get their first job through someone that they met in those years or, you know, um, through other jobs. So they haven't had access to those kinds of networking opportunities or the kind of career development, work integrated learning or internships, that type of thing. So uh, essentially what the same skills that employers were kind of raising red flags about pre-pandemic in terms of, you know, having skill shortages um, are, are just being exacerbated. But, so the skills are going to be a combination of technology skills. We all know that, you know, every to participate in any kind of a way um, in, in school and in life and the economy requires technology skills mm-hmm. and, and every job, you know, is, is experiencing that. So it's, it's not just the technology skills, it's combining that with those really critical, I like to call them human skills, some people call them soft skills, but the problem solving, the collaboration, the learning and, and being resilient to failure, the risk taking, those are such important skills with the technology skills. And and when you think about the fact that this is the generation of workers that are going to help us build back post-pandemic, they need that combination of human skills and technical skills. Um, and, you know, if we're uh, aware of that, you know, we know that they haven't had the chance to, to really exercise those muscles yet. Um, we are just going to have to find ways for them to, to, to catch up a little bit um, and to reassure them that, you know, employers are there to support them. Organizations like Actua that are working to develop those skills are there. You know, governments are there. So they know that, you know, we see them, we see the struggle and we, we you know, we're, we're going to help them get back on track. Right. Not to make light of it, but with all the Zoom meetings, they're going to have to learn how to put on pants or a skirt. <laughs> exactly. I know. Shoes. That's a basic thing, right? It's, yeah. the same, it's the same thing for us. You know, I, I, I've said it in a million different ways, like get dressed, like do what you'd normally do to feel good. Like, exactly. you know, put your shoes on, go for a walk around the block first, like do all the things. Um, and, and it is, you know, it's, it's making light of it in a way, but it's also, it makes a difference. Oh, absolutely. Because mental health has a, a huge role here as well. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about Actua. Mm-hmm. Actua Canada, so Actua, I say. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, uh, it's great. Actua works across the country with universities and colleges who employ undergraduate students that are out in communities building exactly the skills that we're talking about. So they're on the ground offering normally face-to-face programs for youth right from K to grade 12 um, that that build their um, confidence and their skills in science and technology. So we would normally be in thousands of schools across the country um, doing work with teachers and students in the summer. We'd be doing summer programming that you know, gets kids excited and feeling confident about their potential future in these areas. Um, so we have had to adapt as an organization and we're doing, um, we also are doing a hybrid model where some of our programs are delivered online and whenever we can, we're delivering um, back in person and face-to-face, but also really filling the gap of, you know, who's missing, who didn't come back to online school, not because they didn't want to, but because they didn't have the resources to do mm-hmm. that. They didn't have ac- access to technology or to, to internet. So we do extensive work with indigenous communities, for example, and, you know, have been working with those partners to figure out what, what is it that they need and how do we, how can we best be a resource during this, the, this time. But it's just, you know, for us really important to, uh, again, raise awareness that not all kids rejoined when, you know, when schools went online. In fact, there's tens of thousands of kids across the country that just never came back. 
Um, and, you know, that's a whole other issue for a whole other show. Wow. But, um, you know, that, that also includes post-secondary uh, students, right? At the beginning of the pandemic, 20% of 17 to 25-year-olds reported that they weren't going to go to post-secondary as planned. That has just exponentially increased. Um, so there's a, you know, it's one thing to motivate the kids that are there. There's a whole bunch of kids that we've lost. And, um, you know, ACT was working to really hard to figure out how to get them. Yeah. Um, how to get them back. Yeah. I know a lot of kids who said, you know, uh, in, in with, you know, um, conversation with their parents, uh, you know, if my child is going to go back east to school, for example, and it's going to be all online learning, what's the point? You know, they'll just be in a dorm room. I'm not going to pay that. And, you know, made other choices or, you know, yeah. didn't go, as, as you mentioned. Um, this pandemic has certainly exposed the, the prevalent technology and skills gap in the STEM fields, which you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as you said, this necessary to bring order back to our economy to recover. And, you know, who knows when that's going to happen. And so it's great work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Um, how would somebody get uh, to access the actual Canada program mm-hmm. if they're listening tonight? Yeah. Uh, so they can go to our website at actua.ca. And from there, you can find information, you know, certainly across, you know, across BC, but all across the country. We deliver programs in hundreds of communities. So, all, all the information there and, and a bunch of different resources that parents and, and teachers can use um, in, in terms of, you know, hands-on science activities. At this point, it's not something I even want to necessarily promote too much because <laughs> I think parents are just over. <laughs> if one more person puts an activity in front of me, um, you know, I get it. I'm a parent. I'm struggling. Um, and my kids are struggling for sure. Uh, so, yeah, right now it's just about, you know, awareness and providing that kind of support and making sure parents and educators and, and students know that they are not alone. Yes. <laughs> and well, that there's lots of people that are working on their behalf to, you know, to help them uh, regain what's what's been lost. Absolutely. That's fantastic. You know, all our kids are struggling. You make a great point in, in mm-hmm. one way or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, but if somebody yeah. in particular is struggling out there, this might be a great program for them to access. If yeah. they're kind of floundering and not sure what to do, yeah. maybe they decided not to go to post secondary. Um, Actual Canada might be able to help them. Mm-hmm. So, hope Absolutely. thank you so much because hopefully we can reach somebody out there who is struggling. And uh, I agree. Lovely to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the great information. My pleasure. That is Jennifer Flanagan expert educator and CEO of Actua Canada. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the uh, more sexier part of the program. <laughs> Leo's laughing. <laughs> this is the time. This is the time that it's time to go to bed. That's it. It's the time for <laughs> when foreplay begins. <laughs> When women are exhausted, and that has something to do with part of this <laughs> segment as well. Um, uh, you probably don't know that in my spare time, I have a tendency to review really fun research, like women's experience of orgasm during intercourse, question semantics affect women's reports, and men's estimates of orgasm occurrence. That was in the archives of sexual behavior. The authors are Shirazi, Renfro, Lloyd, and Wallen. Um, So, you know, it's interesting because, of course, I have a sexual health clinical practice. If you have any questions, feel free to call. The number to call is one 399 I don't think I've said that all night. Anyway, I'm not myself. Okay. Um, so 
you know, this particular study examined women's experiences about orgasm during vaginal intercourse. And the results revealed that the question wording is critical when it comes to understanding how often women tend to experience orgasm during this activity. So when the question specifically, and I've taught you this on this program before, I'm sure I have. When the question specifically includes clitoral stimulation, women's reported frequency of orgasm, 51 to 60% of the time, is much higher than when the question specifically excludes that ever so important clitoral stimulation, which is 21 to 30% of the time. And that aligns very well with um, about 70% of women require clitoral stimulation to experience orgasm. But there was another part of the study that is worth a mention, which is how heterosexual men responded when they were given the same questions about their perceptions of the orgasmic experiences of women. So the thought was, you know, did women, did, did men, sorry, recognize the important role and, and do men recognize and understand the important role of clitoral stimulation in their partner's orgasms and how accurate were those guys when it came to estimating how often their partners were reaching orgasm. So the study was very interesting. Just over 1,500 men were asked, which is pretty good um, numbers-wise, and were asked to estimate how often women reach orgasm during both the, what was termed in the study, unassisted intercourse, which is vaginal intercourse that does not include any added clitoral stimulation, as well as assisted organ or intercourse, which is vaginal intercourse, in which added clitoral stimulation occurs. So it, it turned out that men did actually recognize that clitoral stimulation does increase the odds of female orgasm. But You've heard it before. Men have a tendency to exaggerate a lot of things. One thing, Leo's shaking his head. Yes, am I right, Leo? Hey, the fish they I caught. I can only speak for myself. <laughs> the fish you caught. Oh my gosh, it was huge. Size matters uh, not. Uh, I moderate in everything. That's anyway. all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Um, there can be some exaggeration going on on both sides of the of the boat, I, I guess. Um, anyway, where was I? So men did recognize that clitoral stimulation is important and it did have a tendency to increase the odds of female orgasm. Um, but men estimated that women orgasm 61 to 70% of the time during assisted intercourse and compared to 40 one to 50% of the time during unassisted or intercourse. Sometimes these studies, they just, you know, you got to understand the lingo. Um, but when you compare these figures to the women's own estimates, which I spoke of earlier, um, men have a tendency to overestimate women's frequency of orgasm in both cases. And so you got to wonder, what's that about? If you want to call in and let me know, <laughs> enlighten me. The number to call is one 877 And if you don't know, the, the study authors felt that it may reflect men's difficulty in accurately detecting women's orgasms or alternatively, men's difficulty in detecting when women 
fake orgasms. You've heard of fake news? Fake orgasms are a thing as well. And that's pretty plausible in light of the number you know, of women who report having faked orgasms before. And, you know, who hasn't faked an orgasm? And there's a number of reasons that women fake orgasms. And one of the main reasons is that it's orgasm was seemingly unlikely. It wasn't going to happen or it was taking too long. And I, I've heard women say, you know, it just takes too long for a number of reasons. It, it can, uh, one of the reasons can actually be as women enter perimenopause or menopause and there's vaginal dryness that occurs and that can actually contribute to taking a long time to experience orgasm. Or they were engaging in a sexual activity that didn't usually produce orgasm for them. So that's why it's very important that communication direction is very important in experiencing orgasm, especially if you're interested, you heterosexual guys out there and guys, all guys, whether you're in a same sex relationship or marriage or, um, I mean, it's important that communication, what feels good, what you enjoy does. But for this specific study, it was around, uh, faking orgasm. Sorry, for this specific study, it was about um, heterosexual men. But faking orgasm, that covers the gamut. Anybody can fake an orgasm, whether you're in a same-sex relationship or a heterosexual relationship. Um, One of the other common reasons that women report that they have faked an orgasm is the desire for the sex to end. Guess what? They weren't really in the mood. Or they were bored or tired, the number one reason for low sexual desire. Or they knew that their partner wouldn't stop unless they experienced orgasm. And, you know, this also has to do with the love and the care in in a relationship is that, you know, they they don't want to hurt their partner's feelings when orgasm is taking a long time. Or they want to avoid a negative consequence. They want to avoid having that awkward conversation afterward. And so many of these conversations, these subjects, you know, involve awkward conversations because we just weren't socialized to talk about sex. Just like earlier, I don't know if you were listening, we weren't socialized to talk about death. All these hard subjects are so challenging for couples. Um, And having that awkward conversation was actually the most commonly reported reason that women faked it or actually having that negative consequence or hurting their partner's feelings. And they also, another reason that for faking orgasm, and, you know, according to research, it's like, you know, they basically say like one, women have faked orgasm at least once. I think that's a gross underestimation. <laughs> I think women fake orgasms a lot um, from, from what I understand from women in my clinical practice um, it's not that women don't want to have an orgasm. They do. It, it, but a lot, you know, there's, there, there are a number of factors that come into play. Uh, the, everything has to be like the stars and the moon has to align, quite frankly, in, in a woman's life for them to even engage in sexual activity with their partner when their partner makes sexual advances and then to actually enjoy the entire experience. And of course, excitement is, is, is critical and, and crucial. And, and we have that in, in early relationships or at the beginning of a relationship. You 
often see that um, when people are having extramarital affairs, they may be with the same person for 10, 15, 20 years. They may be in a sexless marriage. They may not be attracted to their partner anymore. And then they meet somebody and then it's, it's very hot and it's very um, exciting. It's arousing. It's, um, you know, it, it's, it, and, and ex- ex- orgasm may be very easy because it's something that um, you're seeking, that you want. You're, there's the release of all of the chemicals in the brain and the dopamine and all of those pleasure chemicals. And, you know, but it, but it fades out over time and, and you'll hear that, but it can be very exciting, especially if it is something that is a secretive or, um, you know, something that is, um, you know, outside of, um, I'm not condoning extramarital affairs. Um, but you know, also in a new relationship, you have that same attraction, that excitement, that it's, it's not that same old, I can have it any time, uh, any time of day or night with the same person. So early on in a relationship, we see a lot more and it takes a lot more work. That's what I wanted to say. In a relationship that has lasted longer than two weeks, it takes a bit of work, no, a little longer than two weeks. Uh, but really it's like 18 months to four years. And then things actually get a little bit, um, routine or mundane. And so you, you actually have to, um, add variety, spice things up, um, bring some other things into the bedroom perhaps, or change it up a little bit. Um, and you know, and make it exciting But that attraction is also, and you know, you're dealing with the same person every day. You're dealing with the mortgage and the, the kids. And now you're, uh, you know, homeschooling if you've chosen to do that. And so the kids are home and, and you're working from home and, Anyway, it just makes it, you know, will this ever end? That That's the question that a lot of women ask, and that's why they fake orgasms. Anyway, um, but, you know, an orgasm is, is fabulous. It's worth the time. It's worth, you know, dedicating to it. There's, you know, you want to, um, you know, many women have lots on their mind. They, their minds are just chatter, just going, going, going. They're thinking about the next day. They're thinking about their list. They're thinking about how tired they are. When you really have to focus on the intimacy, focus on the moment, think about your genitalia, that's very important, has been shown to increase the chance of experiencing orgasm. Um, But it's, um, you know, the the other reason, um, speaking of extramarital affairs, I don't even know why I got off on that. But anyway, um, at least, you know, some women fake it as a way of keeping their partner from cheating. And so they pretend to experience an orgasm to make sure their partner is sexually satisfied so that they don't leave the relationship. Anyway, they're faking orgasms are very common amongst women and they actually serve a number of different functions. So, but you know, it's just that connection, that understanding, that communication. It's that, you know, when you're with your partner, the person that you love and care about, they're attracted to, you know, and, and not every time are you going to be feeling like you're in the mood, but sometimes even if you're not in the mood and everything else is good in the relationship, it's a great idea to accept your partner's advances. You'll be glad you did. You'll be asking yourself, Why didn't I do this last night? Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.